Welcome to Culture Plan B. I'm David Jubb and I'm excited to welcome you to our eighth episode and the second of our guest episodes, which is produced and edited by guest contributors. Culture Plan B set out to meet with artists and communities who create culture outside big cultural institutions, like most people do. Today's episode is created by Laura Kristeva. She is director of Global Voices Theatre. Born in Bulgaria and now living in London, Laura's worked with Streetwise Opera and is now executive producer of With One Voice, two UK companies that play a major role in the international homelessness movement. This year, Laura created a podcast called Untrained Effort, and she got in touch with Culture Plan B because she wanted to share her interview with one of the world's leading practitioners of legislative theatre, Katie Rubin. I will let Laura introduce Katie, but just to say this is her most fascinating interview. Katie's work with the Greater Manchester Homelessness Action Network and the Greater Manchester Combined Authority is nothing short of awe-inspiring. Imagine legislative theatre as an active and creative tool used by artists working with local authorities and national government, not just to hear the voices of communities across the UK, but to address their concerns directly. Please do enjoy this episode. The first voice you will hear is Laura's, and then she will introduce you to the amazing Katie. Don't tell me how to play. Don't tell me how to speak. Don't tell me how to love. Don't tell me how to fail. is an artist and facilitator, founder and former executive director of Theatre of the Oppressed NYC, a non-for-profit that partners with communities facing discrimination to spark transformative action through theatre. Originally from the US, Kate is currently based in Manchester in the UK, where she's using legislative theatre, working on a multitude of projects, including homelessness prevention and housing first. Good morning, Katie. Good morning, Laura. Thank you so much for speaking to Untrained Effort, although I do have to say that your effort is very much trained, <laughs> and not least with the father of Theatre of the Oppressed, Augustus Boal. What did you learn from your time with Augustus Boal? Yeah, I was working with Boal and uh, the team of jokers that worked with him since he was able to return to Brazil from exile in 1986. So I was there in 2008, was one year before he died. And at that point, at the Center for Theater of the Oppressed Rio, CTO Rio, which still exists, uh, that he started in around 86, they were doing so much work. It was really my kind of in-depth yeah, training and introduction to how theater of the oppressed can work in institutions and systems and communities. But I think what I was most impacted by was the way that the government, so there was a progressive government in Brazil at that point, Lula's government, was supporting Center for Theater of the Oppressed Rio to do massive projects within 
the education system, within the uh, prison system, within the mental health system, and not just working with people who were in prison, but also with guards who were facing oppression, you know, and bureaucracy from administrators in the mental health system, not just working with patients or clients, but also working with mental health practitioners who are facing oppression in the health system. So really looking structurally at problems through making plays about the problems they experienced. And then the government that was funding it would come see the plays and the plays would be directly critiquing that government. And that government would be invited to step in and try to change something in solidarity with the protagonists. And so I really saw the power dynamic of who gets to demonstrate the problem, who has to be in solidarity or take action, and, and how you could do that within a system to change a system and still be entirely critical and honest of the problems within that system. That was the most moving thing to me and why I started Theater of the Oppressed NYC and later what led me to get excited about policy change and, and legislative theater. What do you think needs to happen for a government to be in that position where they actively support such initiatives as Theater of the Oppressed? I will say that I see support here in Greater Manchester within the local authority for participatory democracy, for co-production, right, for leadership by people directly impacted by issues in changing the rules and the policies around those issues, and in, and in using creativity towards structural change. And I think that you know, what all of those entail, it's kind of a, a bit of a catch-22. Something that I've discovered and I've talked to colleagues about is that, you know, in a way what defines government is that they're allergic to risk. That's how you could find their definition. What, what is a government? It is allergic to risk. It is trying to maintain control and maintain the status quo, I think. And so all of these kinds of tools, any participatory tool, anything creative, in its very nature includes risk. We don't know what the people are going to come up with. And if we're being creative, the very intention is to come up with something that we've never seen before. So what does it take for a government to be willing to accept and even embrace risk in such a way that they'll do participatory decision-making and or creative decision-making processes? I think, you know, maybe it's about just being fed up right? Really understanding that the status quo is not working, being in opposition to a larger government. And I think also pressure from residents. You know, I mean, governments are defined by risk, but they're also defined by wanting to stay in power. And I've seen that pressure from residents to say, we're only going to let you stay in power if you involve our participation. Um, I do see that that can sometimes shift power. Why is participatory democracy important to you? It's a shame that we even have to say the phrase participatory democracy because democracy in its, in its very nature should be participatory. And so just adding the, the word participatory is revealing about what democracy has become, right? And what democracy has become is, is all about money. It's all about power. It's about capitalism. It's, again, about preserving the status quo. And in that sense, it's about the, the status quo of wealth and white supremacy, I'd say, and patriarchy. So it's about class, it's about race, it's about gender and power. And so obviously uh, decisions made based on through those lenses 
uh, are not serving the majority of the residents of, of any country, not of this one, not of the United States. And I think that, you know, we need to transform that. And if, if we need to call it participatory to remind not just the decision makers, but all of the residents, I would say, and not just citizens, you know, not, not to use the word citizens, it's about residents, anyone who's impacted by the decisions of that country need to be part of the decision making process. I think we're, we're not going to be able to get what we need. We're not going to be able to achieve our human rights unless we really transform uh, the lenses through which those decisions are made. How does legislative theater then uh, become the tool to perhaps dismantle these forces that you were mentioning, gender, class, race? Um, how does that work? The basic idea of theater of the oppressed is that um, communities facing some kind of oppression, usually based on race, class, gender, uh, xenophobia, homophobia, transphobia, ableism, the, the lenses of oppression through systems and institutions like housing and healthcare, criminal justice system, uh, immigration system, um, are experiencing some kind of oppression. They can't get what they need, uh, a really tangible need. They build a play around that need. Um, and then they take that play to peers and stakeholders, neighbors, decision makers, and invite those audience members, which we call spect actors in the theater of the oppressed. No one is just a spectator. Everyone is ready to take action to come up on stage and try out alternatives, interventions, improvise real ideas. And those improvisations lead to a critical analysis by everyone in the room about what are the current rules around this problem? What needs to change? How did that change affect the problem? Would that be something we could try in real life? So really rehearsing for reality and rehearsing for the revolution, Boal used to say. And in New York City, we started taking that a step further, sometimes feeling frustrated that we would have these really uh, rich and critical conversations and discoveries about systems without the decision makers there and without some mechanism for accountability in terms of change changing the rules and policies around the problem. And so we jumped off from some experiments that Boal did when he was a city council member in Rio and started bringing the city council, the um, mayor's office, the local authority, even the state and federal government in, in the states into the space around a specific problem. Uh, for example, landlords illegally uh, refusing to accept tenants who had housing vouchers, so housing benefits here, right? That would be a specific problem. And we would invite all the different stakeholders to work on that issue, and not just the decision makers, but also the advocates and lawyers and experts. And after the audience, the spectators tried ideas on stage and we had that critical analysis, it led to actually writing policy proposals. Um, I think of policy as just the gap between what a person can do in real time with another person and how they need to change a situation to achieve their rights. Those policy proposals get sorted or processed, right, negotiated in the real time, in the theater with the decision makers, by the decision makers and the community members and the activists and the lawyers, and then pitched back to the whole audience again in the same event saying, okay, all of your ideas were sort of summarized into these top three piles. And then there's a debate and amendments and people ask questions and they challenge the decision makers. And we, as the facilitators, support that challenging until we're ready to take a vote on those new policies that were created by the spectators and the actors in response to the problem directly um, and in response to what people tried on stage. So absolutely creative response. 
And then we ask the decision makers what actions they're going to take next on those policies and we hold them accountable. Um, so that's the process of legislative theater. And I think to your question, there's several ways in which that uh, rearranges how power is often distributed and rearranges how rules are often made or policies, right? So who's presenting the problem? How is the problem being presented? Really in a human and emotional and compelling, impactful way, not by statistics, not by something that people are able to kind of reject the facts or reject the human impact of a problem. So the storytelling is happening in a different way. And the, um, the way that we're actually proposing ideas is flipped around as who's proposing the ideas, who's holding the decision makers accountable, what space that's happening in, all of that is meant to be flipped. So, you know, from my perspective, if we need to be participatory in democracy, we can't do it in the same arrangements, in the same spaces, uh, with the same power dynamics that democracy has been happening in so far. What happens the day after the show and the debate? Theater of the Oppressed NYC started to develop a full range of what we call creative advocacy tools. So that absolutely the, the legislative theater event is the beginning. You don't make policy in one day and you can't hold policymakers accountable in one moment. It has to be over time. So the actors uh, have meetings scheduled. The, the troupe, the community that created the play have meetings scheduled with the decision makers at a set period of time afterwards, could be a month afterwards, to ask them what they've done about the ideas, to ask how we can activate our community to push them further, and then publicize those actions from there to everyone who came and continue to meet with them regularly. But more than that, I think it's really about also the theater needs to be in service of the organizers and activists who are the people who really make policy change happen always. And, and that's always been the case, right? They're out there rallying, uh, you know, having meetings, having phone drives, you know, send, getting people to send emails. And so a legislative theater process needs to be really in partnership with those advocacy groups so that we, we started doing what we called rapid response theater. So we would do a legislative theater event around a process and there would be some policy ideas. And then we would say, okay, our play, our community is at your service, organizing groups, activist groups. So if you need on the you know, short notice, you're gonna have a rally, a press conference, a hearing, testimonials, we're gonna come use these same tools to continue to promote the need for these policy changes. And through that process, various policies have changed, rules have changed in New York City. Um, and also the government started coming to Theater of the Oppressed NYC and now here in Greater Manchester, um, thinking that, you know, we're getting, the government's thinking, you know, we're getting flack for our lack of, of effective community engagement. And what they understand is that when we don't do community engagement well, the policies that we come up with aren't good. And maybe they're good for the government, but the people aren't happy with them. And that eventually has an impact on the government. You led Theater of the Oppress NYC from 2011 for seven years. And I was wondering how were the agenda set? How is the, that process of picking uh, the community you work with, um, what they're working on, how is that process happening? All of that came from the communities that we were working with, always. That's the central idea of Theatre of the Oppressed, is that 
revolution, liberation is led by people who are experiencing oppression. And, you know, um, we also understand clearly that there is intersectional oppression. So we're all experiencing oppression in different ways. And there were many ways for kind of the whole community to be in solidarity with each other. So one of the things that Theater of the Oppressed NYC prioritized, which I'm also prioritizing in my work now in the UK, is leadership development. So that throughout the process of making plays, anyone who made a foreign play, made a legislative theater play, did that process could have a channel to become a facilitator and a paid staff member of the organization. And now there's about 20 facilitators, paid staff in the organization, not freelancers, staff uh, with benefits, et cetera, who were first in the troops with TONYC, have experience of homelessness or experience in the criminal justice system, experience of poverty, experience of immigration. And that's 90% of the facilitators of Theater of the Oppressed NYC. And the, and the office staff. So that channel is really important to think about, you know, if we're talking about changing the arrangements of power, it's also about who is leading the art making and who is leading the advocacy work, right? It's not just about the events. And so if you're doing that, then the question of decision making about what the themes are, what the issues are, almost becomes, uh, well, it becomes a very different question because there's no separation between who's impacted by the problem and who's not. Even then, there's, you know, there's always questions of power when someone is leading a group. So the process has to be that games and exercises and discussion lead the group making the play to identify the problem that they're facing and the problem that they wanna make a play about. Within the frame of legislative theater, as I said, partnering with advocacy groups nonprofits, activists who are doing the work was really key. So TONYC also paid actors and staff to go to organizing meetings and be a part of coalitions so that there was also a direct ear and part of the work to say, okay, this organizing group around housing and homelessness is starting to focus on this issue. And we know that that's also relating to this play we're making. So it seems like this would be a great legislative theater process uh, and we should move in that direction. When you were part of a theater of the oppressed NYC, you were both executive director and facilitator. How was that balance for you? Let's see. I mean, almost all of our team were also facilitators. And part of that was because, again, if we're talking about <laughs> a broken record about power and rearranging power. Um, but, you know, we all knew from our other or I knew from my other work in the arts and, and in social justice a bit. And certainly as a as a teaching artist, as they say in America. Right. So kind of working in arts education in schools before uh, I started doing theater of the oppressed. I knew that there was a big divide and a hierarchy between the administration of an organization and the people in the front line doing the work. Uh, and I see that, you know, ongoing. And so one of the ways that we originally thought to at least try to address that power divide and, and as you say, make decisions that are coming directly from the ground as best as possible in terms of what the work is, was to not have that divide. So not to hire administrative roles who weren't attached to the work or having to do the work. And then maybe you're, you're leading to this too, but I would say, you know, one of the things that became clear is we're talking about you know facilitator development and theater of the oppressed the we're called jokers the unbiased joker in the deck of cards so it's the the joker in in joker development our work was all about making sure that the actors in the troops became jokers and staff so there wasn't such a need quickly to hire 
you know, jokers who had trained in applied theater or arts education in school and didn't necessarily have a connection with that community. And that was important to us because that was, again, coming back to just making better decisions. So that also became clear in the administration that sooner rather than later, I needed to put myself out of a job as the executive director because that was also taking up a space of power that I didn't necessarily need to take up. And particularly as a white person, when a lot of our work was about addressing racial injustice in New York City. And so that was a, another part of our organization, was being explicit about that and trying to address that as soon as we could. It sounds to me that the whole project of Theatre of the Oppressed NYC is really to create a whole environment where these ideas of change and, and, and challenging power and redistribution of it can flourish. How is that perhaps um, now that you are in the UK and as far as I understand working independently as a freelancer? It's so fascinating and wonderful to be in the UK as an American. First of all, you know, on several levels to be able to kind of see, you know, see things from a, from a different perspective. The first thing that we notice as an American is that there is more than America, at least, more social welfare, right? More protections. There's the, the NHS, which just the NHS alone would make me never want to leave um, in comparison to what there is in the United States. And then additionally, kind of better social supports um, and more funding, even though we see that's getting cut. And then on the other side, there's in some ways the U.S. maybe has move forward in a different way in terms of being explicit, at least, uh, let's say, in the spaces I was moving in, in activist spaces in New York City, about, you know, race and class and about challenging power, yeah, and, and kind of here thinking about remnants of colonialism and, and thinking about power. And so I see that there is a lot of appetite right now for those conversations, I feel, in Greater Manchester at least, um, in terms of co-production, in terms of charities and government, who's in power, and trying to be explicit about, um, about class, about lived experience, uh, about race, and how those are reflected or not reflected in the work. Um, so I feel like I have a bit of opportunity as a freelancer here, and maybe even as an outsider, right, as an American, to say, okay, we would love to do this project. We would love to do legislative theater, um, you know, towards, for instance, the Greater Manchester Homelessness Prevention Strategy, which is what's one of the big things that's happening here over this year. But in order to do that, I think we should make a core part of it that there's a training a cohort of facilitators so that at the end of the project, you know, four or five people with experience of homelessness or housing insecurity are trained and feel supported as legislative theater facilitators and continue to use these tools around various issues. Um, and it's not that I'm coming with these ideas and, and they're not already happening here. I think in Greater Manchester, at least, they're very strong. Um, and there was, in a way, maybe a hunger for different arrangements and different structures of co-production that wouldn't just mimic the traditional power-making rooms. And that's been identified, right? That, you know, sitting in meetings or, you know, using <laughs> post-it notes or to just mimic the way that decisions were made before is not necessarily inclusive or supportive of co-production. I first met you at the International Arts and Homelessness Summit and uh, Festival in Manchester. And you continue to work in homelessness and, and kind of challenging the processes 
inside the sector, but also on, on policy level. Has homelessness became a, a focus for you? My focus is on structural inequality. So I don't think that I don't want to isolate to homelessness because I don't believe that homelessness is isolated, right? I think that homelessness is a symptom, just as, at least in the States, you know, mass incarceration is a symptom, health inequities are a symptom of structural uh, oppression. Poverty is an issue for me. Structural inequality is an issue for me. And wherever there's energy around changing that, that's where I feel like there's space for creative policy change like legislative theater. And, and right now I, do, I feel like there's a lot of energy around thinking about homelessness and housing. But even here, you know, there's an understanding that homelessness and housing goes along with a lot of other issues like healthcare, food justice, uh, all kinds of things. I remember you telling me that legislative theater works especially well when it's a specific I was wondering if you could be specific and tell me where else would you like to see legislative theatre applied? <laughs> Can I give the example that you and I were talking about? Um, for example, you know, right now we're in a specific crisis of the coronavirus and the related economic and et cetera challenges. Many sectors and many communities are facing a crisis, and the cultural sector is one of those uh, communities. Um, and so... After a long time, the government came out and committed, uh, I think, 1.57 billion pounds to the cultural sector and theater specifically. And, you know, we were thinking there's really specific questions like that's a policy that's already been, well, it's been halfway made, right? The money's been committed, but not how it's going to get distributed. So if you have people in an, in an immediate challenge and you have money that's been committed, but not how it will get distributed, that's a perfect opportunity to think about legislative theater. And similarly, there's other tools that I also work with and learn from, like participatory budgeting, right? That, that participatory budgeting and legislative theater can go hand in hand. But I guess I bring that as an example because when there's already a commitment for change from decision makers, and when there's already an activated community that is identifying changes needed, that's a perfect storm or a, a perfect setup to use tools like legislative theater. And when I see, I guess what excites me is both a problem that people are activated around, but already some commitment for change that you could see that, you know, just some a creative lens and a way to tell the stories of what the change is needed could really have a big impact. Unfortunately for this particular example, the government announced yesterday how the money is going to be distributed. That doesn't right. mean that we know all of the details around it. And as you know, in the UK, there's this arm length bodies such as the Arts Councils that then redistribute the money down the chain, as it were. Yeah. Uh, and my question here is like, is there a moment where it's too late for legislative theatre to come into the process? Well, when a decision has been made and executed in terms of money distribution, possibly, but Legislative theater doesn't just have to be about high level policy change like governments. Uh, we in New York and in the States have done legislative theater very effectively with institutions. Um, and actually with One Voice where we met, you know, we did some legislative theater that impacted the policies of the institution. So I would say there are certainly large arts institutions, right? Or uh, housing and homelessness organizations that 
make rules and decisions about how they're going to carry out policy every day. So there's policy and there's practice. There's, there's, there's the rules and then there's how the, the staff, the people in that place choose to interpret those rules. And to me, that's another kind of policy. Um, and sometimes what we find uh, and we do legislative theater around, you know, again, housing or policing is that actually the law exists but it's not being implemented in a way that supports the needs of the community. So there's, there's plenty of opportunity to look at implementation of a rule. So if an arts institution got tens of millions of pounds, a large arts institution, then you go to the arts institution and you think about how are they distributing it? What are their processes for making decisions? I see that there's rules around everything we do in every space we're in. And if there are rules, there are opportunities for the communities that are impacted by those rules to change those rules in a creative way. What would you say were the wins when you look back, the wins that you were most proud of? One story that I go back to often, but it, it's a very powerful story and, and impacted, you know, really millions of people in New York City. And this is a quick story, uh, if we have time. Um, there was a play some years ago uh, by young people, um, LGBTQ youth with experience of homelessness in New York City. And uh, one of the stories was of a trans woman. She had gotten an apartment, uh, she was living in it and she was experiencing domestic violence from her partner. And someone, a neighbor called the police as people do, uh, which of course brings up another question these days about you know who else do we call when we need community support and safety. But the police came to the door and asked for her ID. And because in New York State at that time, you couldn't get your gender or your name changed on your ID without a surgery, which was not accessible for a lot of people, she had an ID with her a dead name, an old name, and the wrong gender pronoun. And the police accused her of having false ID used as an, as an excuse to search her apartment and found uh, syringes, which she used for hormones, and accused her of having drug paraphernalia and arrested her. So the audience identified a lot of problems within that story. And one of the decision makers, the legislators who was there, was a council member, the chair on the Committee on Immigration in New York City, also the first gay council member from Brooklyn. And he um, uh, and also had studied theater in college, which was you know, one of the key ways that we, we, we drew in decision makers to our processes in the beginning. And the audience knew from the information that we shared in our info fair before the event that he was going to be there and that he was proposing this municipal ID, this New York City ID, which would be the second of its kind in the states, um, that was independent of the state and that would be recognized by public services and the police as an official ID. And the audience proposed that you could put any gender marker without any proof of surgery or even doctor's note, which is what was needed for the state. Um, and they also recommended that you didn't have to put a gender marker at all, that you could leave it blank and you, it would still be a valid ID. And that was pretty radical and that was voted in. And the council member stayed and talked to the actors and the audience and, and really kind of was listening to stories more. And three months later that became part of the bill. And now about 2 million New Yorkers have that ID. It's impacted lots of folks who are undocumented immigrants and lots of folks who are trans and to have a valid ID in New York City has been, you know, very, very powerful change. So that was a, a one example of kind of the nuance of a policy that wouldn't necessarily have been uh, identified without the legislative theater. Um, there were many other examples like that, including 
pushing council members to vote for legislation on uh, police accountability that they weren't going to vote for before, and actually uh, identifying uh, several new ways to support the cultural community and specifically low-income artists or artists experiencing homelessness through New York City's first ever cultural plan. Um, and the city engaged in a legislative theater process specifically to hear from people who had experience of homelessness um, and how they were involved in the cultural process and the art making process. Some changes that move forward there were increasing the cap on vendor licenses so that more people could sell their art without being arrested for illegally selling. Um, there was a very strict cap in New York City for a long time. So those are just some concrete changes that I think uh, have been good examples for us about the way that changes can be made. Do you want to tell me a little bit more about your current projects and anything that you would like to highlight? Sure. So it's really exciting that the Greater Manchester Combined Authority um, has engaged in this long-term legislative theater process to generate the GM homelessness prevention strategy. And this was started before COVID hit, but you know it's even more urgent now and it will take into account some of the post-COVID plans that are happening. And as I said, part of that process is that um, we have a cohort of facilitators in training. We've started making the first play already which is about the impact of multiple disadvantage on homelessness and preventing homelessness. Um, so this group of facilitators is facilitating a playmaking process with another group of actors, community members who are actors uh, in the project. And we've just come together. That's been really exciting. And there'll be two more plays in that process leading to, you know, we're excited to see what the outcomes will be, what the ideas will be and how they will feed into this five-year homelessness prevention strategy. And then from that, some other projects have sprung up in the area. Again, it's really exciting to see how we can come at homelessness and housing through creative policy change from different angles. So there's a project going on right now um, with Housing First that will have a legislative theater performance uh, in person and online, most likely on uh, the 17th of September, about how to improve the Housing First pilot in Greater Manchester. Um, so Housing First is a program or, or an idea really uh, used in various countries, essentially the idea that people who are experiencing homelessness should get apartments or housing first and then support around uh, mental health or uh, substances or employment or any other thing as opposed to waiting to be eligible or to qualify for housing, thinking that it's really hard to address other needs before someone has a stable place to live. There's several pilots going on in the UK right now and a three-year pilot is happening in Greater Manchester. And it's just in the middle of the pilot, just about a year and a half in, which is a really great time um, to bring up some of the challenges. And actually some of the challenges are about uh, neighbors in private rental sector and landlords and, and how to support them or require them or support them to support their tenants and be more inclusive and welcoming um, and not discriminatory. So a really interesting and challenging question is going to come up there. The name or the tag decision makers came up a lot in our conversation. And obviously, assuming this episode goes massively viral and everyone everywhere who is a decision maker, however small or big, is listening, what would you say to them? I would say that democracy is defined as a, a representative system. So a decision maker really shouldn't be a decision maker at all. They are an actor. 
right? Everyone is an actor in this system, in this world. Everyone is able to take action. They are an actor who's given their lines um, by the people they represent. And I believe that many, you know, people in those positions of power uh, went into uh, that work wanting to do that. And then, you know, the, even the system that they are in, in the process of elections, et cetera, or, you know, just whatever kind of power making position they're in can um, make it harder for them or make them forget how to go back to community. So I think their responsibility to go back to what we were saying before is to embrace risk from the perspective that what we are doing right now simply isn't working. And if we don't embrace risk and creativity and participation, then we will just continue to fail. And on the flip side, perhaps, what would you say to people who might be listening to this and still think, I, I still feel disempowered. I don't know how to go about solving this. I, I don't maybe have the tools and that sense of, yeah, disempowerment, frustration, and maybe even anger are the things that are not the right way around. What would you say to them? I think that anger is useful and it activates us. Again, I'm a broken record, but, you know, there's some connection between this idea of being activated and this idea of being an actor and taking action. And so Boal would say every person is an actor in their own lives and in their own communities. And the energy that we feel that comes up when we are stopped from getting what we need can be incredibly useful if we can find a community with which to channel that. And the other thing I'd say, and, and part of that, is that one of the pieces, and I don't know that I've used this word yet, but it's very important to me, one of the pieces of legislative theater is that it's fun. And fun is key. I don't think that people will show up to the revolution if it's not fun. I certainly won't. And I don't think people will show up to the city council hearing if it's not fun. And it often, in my experience, is not. And fun is not a, a light, a silly and frivolous thing. Fun is, inspires us to think outside the boxes that we're in, to turn things upside down. And it equalizes power a little bit. Laughing, having fun, enjoying ourselves uh, can sometimes be the opposite of a power dynamic, which is about control and seriousness often. And fun allows us to engage in something that feels so painful and so difficult with a renewed sense of energy. So when we can find something that allows for that fun um, and even celebrates it and centers it, I hope that it will support all of us in transforming our frustration into forward moving energy because you know I think that that's really our only option. I started untrained efforts because I felt that at a moment when the crisis was at its highest, that I wasn't going to be able to make theatre for, for a bit. Now, I think we probably agree that storytelling, theatre, connecting with others is something that intrinsically makes us human and will probably not disappear despite of, of the environment that we're in. And we will always find ways of doing that. A lot of your work has also moved online and is still giving results and shifting power and decision making. Uh, but I was wondering if you would imagine that theatre was never to exist, what would you do? Well, I don't think you can make theatre never exist. You can make it never exist in a closed space with a lot of seats, but it has existed in the street 
for many centuries. It ex has existed in outdoor amphitheaters. It has, I think that a city council meeting is theater and those are not going to end because they'll always prioritize the government. The government will always prioritize the government. And so I think that it's up to us to reimagine what theater is, who makes it, what it looks like, where it takes place, how perfect it needs to be, quote unquote, and what are the other ways that we can see the actions that we're taking as, as acting and as rehearsal. Thank you so much. Uh, before we say goodbye, where can people follow you, your work, support what you do? On Twitter at at Katie Rubin, T-O, Katie, K-A-T-Y, R-U-B-I-N, that's me, or katierubin.com. And the GM Homelessness Prevention Project can be followed at streetsupport.net. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's fun to talk to you. We hope you enjoyed this eighth episode of Culture Plan B. It was recorded, produced and edited by Laura Kristeva. If you have an idea for a guest episode, you can contact us at cultureplanb at gmail.com. The series credits for Culture Plan B are that the editors and sound mixers are Ian Dickinson and George Dennis. The music is from Don't Tell Me by Conrad Murray with Kate and Nate from BAC's Beatbox Academy. Communication support from Antonio Goddard. With thanks to David Bellwood for helping us to make the series more inclusive and accessible. And in addition to David, big thanks to our trans subscribers for all the episodes so far. That's Hannah Gibbs, Julie Osman, Kate Donachie, Stand and Be Counted and Phil Cleves. Original artwork by John Balser and the producer and creator is Matthew Dunster. Don't tell me how to play, don't tell me how to speak, don't tell me how to love, don't tell me how to